Today's reading is taken from Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 7, verse 3. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me, because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me, so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also, in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, 
and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Amen. So those of you who lived through the glory days of television, uh, by which of course I mean the early 1990s, uh, may remember the Saturday tea time phenomenon that was gladiators. For those of you who are a bit younger or inexplicably thought you had something better to do, each episode featured male and female contenders uh, and they competed in a series of athletic challenges against the titular gladiators, a group of unfeasibly muscular uh, and athletic men and women. At the end of each episode, the two male contenders and the two female contenders would go head to head against each other on an obstacle course called the Eliminator. But the real drama of the episode wasn't even the Eliminator. The real drama came right at the end of it, the dreaded Travelator. It was a moving walkway on a steep slope, and the contenders, with the finishing line right beyond it, had to run up the slope as the walkway was going the wrong way. After a full day battling rhino and cobra, or lightning and jet, and after scrambling up cargo nets and jumping over various things in the Eliminator itself, many contenders found that this last obstacle was just one too many. It actually wasn't unusual for a contender to arrive at the Travelator miles ahead of their opponent, but be unable to complete that last run. With their opponent closing in behind them, some of them would rally and get up there and still win. Others would fall flat on their faces inches from victory and have to watch as their opponent went streaking through and claimed the win. When the pressure really ramped up, with the finishing line literally in sight, some of the contenders rose to the occasion and others crumbled. And this is the way in all sorts of walks of life, isn't it? It's often the way difficulty increases just as we're getting close to the finishing line. Competition increases. Sometimes our opponents dig down and find something, a little extra, that we don't have. Maybe you can think of other examples. I always think of a sports team with a narrow lead, digging in, clinging on, just trying to protect that lead against an opponent that's sent their goalie forward or whatever else, with the fans watching the clock and screaming for the ref to blow the final whistle. We're so close. And what we see in our passage this morning is Nehemiah's opponents, knowing that this is in its final stages. The project is nearly completed, the thing that we've been watching over the past few weeks. The clock's ticking down, the finishing line is in sight, the gaps in the wall have been filled, 
and the only thing that's left to do is restore the gates. Then you've got a wall. Then you've got a functioning city wall. Right from the first time we heard about them in chapter 2, Sanballat and Tobiah are against the wall. Sometimes Geshem is involved with them too. At the end of chapter 2, we see them mocking the project as it gets started. We see them mocking the wall itself as the work is begun. They're trying to embarrass Israel. They're trying to make them give up before they even get going. But that doesn't work. So in chapter 4, they plan to raid Jerusalem as the wall's being built, physically attack the wall. But Nehemiah gets wind of it, and he posts guards, so that doesn't work either. So in chapter 6, where we are this morning, it's their last chance. They're getting desperate. And previously they've mocked, or previously they've attacked the wall, but this time it's personal. This time they go after Nehemiah himself. And Nehemiah, after every challenge that he's faced that we've heard about in the previous few weeks to get the project to this point, has one last hurdle to get over, these personal attacks. There are three different attacks uh, in our passage this morning. So first, verses 1 to 4. Sambalat and Geshem send him the message, come and meet us in a village on the plain of Ono. We can be tempted maybe to take that at face value, and, and actually if we do, that could be quite an interesting proposition, right? Quite an interesting invitation. Nehemiah knows these are the people who have been causing trouble for the wall building. If you remember chapter 4, actually, he was so concerned about the opposition uh, that Sambalat and Tobiah have sent against him, um, he's made half his workforce actually stop work so they can stand guard. So actually, if this is an olive branch, if this were a genuine effort to try and find a compromise, that could be quite a tempting offer. You could put that half of your workforce that's currently standing guard back to work. They could build the wall. And actually, Sam Ballant and Geshem are persistent. When Nehemiah refuses to meet them, they send another invitation, and another, and another, four times. The same invitation, come and meet us. Let's thrash this out. Well, it wasn't a genuine offer, of course, and Nehemiah saw through it. Verse 2, Nehemiah saw this is not an attempt to bury the hatchet, this is a scheme to harm him. We're not exactly sure what that means. Some Bible scholars look at the location of the plain of Ono, which was surrounded by enemy territory, and they think that the plan was to arrange for Nehemiah to have an accident, I I was doing air quotes for the benefit of the tape, um, on his journey there, or perhaps on his journey back. It's wild country, after all, that he's travelling through. It would be entirely believable that Nehemiah would not have made it back from that trip. Other scholars look at Nehemiah's reply, and they think that the harm that Nehemiah is referring to in verse 2 is not to him physically, but the distraction, taking time away from the project. Everything would have had to stop for Nehemiah to go to this meeting. So they weren't planning to kill him. They were harming him by harming his work, hindering him by making him put everything on pause. Either way, Nehemiah wasn't biting, was he? I believe it was one of the Wesleys, I forget which, who said that no one can preach this passage without making this exact joke. Uh, So here we go. Four times, you know where it's going, right? Four times they asked Nehemiah to come and meet them on the plains of Ono, 
And four times Nehemiah said, oh no. <laughs> I apologize, it is obligatory. Um, but, but actually, in all seriousness, what Nehemiah said was so much better than just, oh no. Look at verse three. What an amazing response. I'm carrying on a great project in more traditional versions. I'm doing a great work. Why should it stop so that I can come and meet you? I'm doing a great work. Why should it stop? Sam Ballot and Geshem are at least trying to distract Nehemiah, and possibly worse. But he won't be fooled. He won't be distracted. He knows where his priorities are. So that's their first attack. They distract. When that doesn't work, verse 5, Sambalat tries to dismay Nehemiah um, and the whole workforce. The first four letters that he'd sent were sealed, literally sealed with, with wax. And it was important to do that um, in this time so that the messenger wouldn't read the message. If you had something private to say, you would seal it um, so that the person who was actually physically carrying the letter wouldn't know what it said. The fifth letter is not sealed. The fifth letter is an open letter. And that meant that the messenger was meant to read it. And more than meant to read it, he was meant to share it with the people that he encountered on his journey. That was the point of an open letter. This is the BC equivalent of tagging someone in a tweet. It sort of looks like you're addressing that person, but actually there are private ways you could have used. Actually, really, if you're tagging someone in a public tweet, it's because you want everyone else to know what you're saying to that person, right? This is what an open letter was. So what does Sambalat say? What's the message that he wants spread? Well, verses 6 and 7. The wall-building project, he's heard, this is what everyone's saying, is all just a part of Nehemiah's plan to set himself up as a king and lead the Jews as a rebel kingdom. It's not what I think, of course. It's what everyone else is saying, though. Oh, and, and Geshem says that it's true. So why would that be a problem for Nehemiah? Well, look at the end. Look at verse 7. This is a report that's going to get back to the king. Well, the implication is quite obvious. King Artaxerxes trusted you, Nehemiah. He personally gave you this authority. He personally made you governor of this region so that you could rebuild the city. A nice, innocent project that you sold him on. And it's, he's now going to hear that you tricked him. This was always part of a plan to lead a rebellion. This was always part of a plan to take what he gave you and set yourself up as a rival. And that's not the sort of thing that makes a king happy. And when kings get unhappy, well, they tend to send out the armies to put an end to whatever it is that's making them unhappy. So for the fifth time, Nehemiah, come and meet me. Let's put an end to this silly rumor before the king hears it, because then you're in trouble. Of course, Nehemiah's not fooled again. And it's interesting here, his response is, is two things. First, in verse 8, he responds to Sambalat. Um, and again, he had a way with words. Uh, it's a fantastic response. No beating around the bush, no giving Sambalat the benefit of the doubt, no couching it uh, in nice, friendly terms. No, straight and to the point. None of that's happening. You're making this up out of your head. Just the truth. Just the truth, quite straightforward, and presumably in an open letter. 
sent on the same route so that all the people who saw the accusation can see the response. But here, crucially, as well as the response, Nehemiah does something else. He recognises that the news of this letter will have got around. That's the point of an open letter. So even though he can respond to the personal attack and put Sambalat back in his box, he has to know the seed of doubt is going to have been planted in the workforce in Jerusalem. Verse 9, that's the plan. They're trying to dismay the workforce. They're trying to make their hands too weak for the work. Nehemiah knows that while they're putting stones on the wall, some of the Israelites are going to have at least half an eye on the horizon, watching out for the massed forces of King Artaxerxes coming to put down this rebellion. That's the point. That's why this letter is out there. That's the plan, to make the workforce feel like the whole thing is futile, to send them into dismay, because if they're dismayed, then they'll stop working. So having identified a problem, a need, Nehemiah did what Nehemiah always did when he saw a need. He prays. The enemy's trying to dismay us, to weaken the hands of the workforce, so you pray, verse 9. Strengthen my hands. Just as with his response to Sambalat in the letter, it's direct. It addresses the need. Here's the problem, here's the prayer. Not flowery, straight to the point. So, they tried to distract, and Nehemiah prioritised and persisted. They tried to dismay, and Nehemiah told them the truth and prayed for courage. And then, verses 10 to 13... Uh, their last attack, they tried to discredit Nehemiah. This one's a really sneaky one. Nehemiah goes to see um, Shemaiah, a prophet, uh, who, unbeknownst to him at this point, has been paid off by Tobiah and Sambalat. Shemaiah's actually shut himself up inside his house. We're not told why, um, but it's possible that he was doing this to be a living illustration of the message that he was um, about to give. This is something that prophets often did. You might think of Ezekiel um, as an example. And the message that Shemaiah gives Nehemiah is quite simple. Men are coming to kill you. And let's face it, at this point in the story, that has to be quite believable. His enemies have tried to summon him to go on at least a dangerous journey, possibly one where they were going to arrange for it to be even more dangerous. They've threatened him that they're lying to the king about what he's doing so that the king will send his armies against Israel. So it's not all that hard to imagine that this could have been true, that they might actually have hired people to come and kill Nehemiah. But Shemaiah goes on, well, I've got a solution. You can hide from the assassins, you can go into the temple, and you can shut the doors behind you. Why is that a problem? Well, Nehemiah wasn't a priest. And the law is very clear in the book of Numbers. If you're not a priest, you don't go into the temple. Full stop. Not the temple itself. You can go into the grounds and there are places where people are allowed. But you don't go into the middle and you don't shut the doors. Actually, this is even more sneaky on Shemaiah's part because there was a place in the temple courtyard, not the temple itself where someone could go and they could ask for protection if they were in fear for their life by grabbing on to the horns of the altar. Um, we see this happening 
at various points in the Old Testament. But to be clear, that was in the courtyard. It was not in the temple itself. So here's this teacher, this prophet, telling Nehemiah something that was actually really close to the truth, but just a step beyond, and not the truth. It might have sounded familiar to somebody who was actually less schooled in God's law than Nehemiah was. They might have thought, oh yeah, the thing where you can go and get sanctuary in the temple. Of course, I should just do that. But actually, if Nehemiah had done this, he would have been breaking God's law. And once he'd done that, verse 13, his enemies would have discredited him. They'd have given him a bad name. I think that's a short, short way of saying he'd have lost his moral authority over Israel. Here he is claiming to be doing God's work, rebuilding the law, uh, uh, rebuilding the wall, excuse me, but he's broken the law. So why should we follow him? That was the idea. The project would have stopped again. But again, Nehemiah sees what's happening. He understands the law. He knows that he shouldn't do this. And he sees that this is a deliberate twisting of what the law says. Verse 11, he won't go. He's not the type of man who will put God's law to one side to save his own skin. So there we have it. Those are the three final attempts by Nehemiah's enemies to stop the wall being built. They try to distract, they try to dismay, and they try to discredit. But every time, Nehemiah sees through the scheme. Every time, he's shrewd, he's discerning. Every time, he makes sure that his priorities are right, he responds truthfully, and he responds directly. And then verse 15 Having overcome the final obstacles, the wall was completed. We heard the history back at the start of this series. For a hundred years, those walls have been in ruins. Some Israelites have returned to live in Jerusalem, but they're living there with holes in the wall. They're living there with no city gates. Until one day, God puts it on Nehemiah's heart to do something about it. Despite living a long way away, despite having no authority... Despite the mockery from chapter 2, despite his workforce being made of perfume makers and priests, despite the threats of violence from chapter 4, despite these personal attacks in chapter 6, 52 days after it was started, the project that couldn't be touched for 100 years was completed. This isn't the end of the book of Nehemiah. It's not the end of our series. But it feels as good a time as any to ask, what are we meant to get from that? What are we meant to understand? It's in the Bible, right? Which means that we believe that the Holy Spirit has made sure that it's been written down and preserved for us. We believe that this is useful to us. What's the angle that we're meant to take on this, though? It's a really important question to ask when we look at the Old Testament, isn't it? We can sometimes treat everything that happened before Jesus as, as one lump. And the sort of central message is... God can do extraordinary things. And, and that's true. God can do extraordinary things and did do extraordinary things. But there's so much more to the specifics of these histories that we need to understand if we're going to get what we're meant to get from it. Nehemiah is a case in point. The more you look at this book, the more you look at the man, what he did, what that wall meant, 
actually, the more you feel it's, it's one of the closest parallels that we have in the Old Testament to what it is to be a Christian in 2022. Let me try and walk you through that one. Um, We know that in Nehemiah's day, some of God's people have come back to Israel. They've come back to Jerusalem. The temple's been rebuilt and it has been rededicated. That might ring a bell. That might remind you of the promises, the covenant promises that God made to the Jewish patriarchs. God's people in God's place with God's presence and under his blessing. And if you squinted it, It sort of looks like that. You can almost see it, but it's not there yet. It's not quite right. Some of God's people are back in Jerusalem, yes, but not many. Why? Well, because it's not a very nice place to live. Why? Because it doesn't have a wall. It's difficult for us to imagine because we think of cities as being where the crime is, being where the violence is much more so than the bucolic countryside. But actually during this period, the city wall was how you kept the trouble out. It wasn't just to hold off invading armies, although it did that too. No, the city wall was there so that you could shut the gate at night time to keep the raiders from riding through your streets. It was so, as we see at the end of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of our passage at the start of chapter seven, if you have a complete wall and you have a gate, well then you can post guards you can keep undesirables out of your city entirely. So without a wall, Jerusalem actually wasn't a very safe place to live at all. And more than that, without a wall, Jerusalem didn't feel like a city. Back in chapter 1, the Jews who come to stay with Nehemiah and talk to him about the remnant who are coming back to Jerusalem, which starts this whole thing off, They say this, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. They're not just in trouble because of the lack of a wall. It's not just a dangerous place to live. They're in disgrace. The broken wall is a source of shame for them. A reminder that the city of David is not much of a city at all. It's a poor reflection. In many ways, having a wall is what makes it a city. It's like the BC equivalent of a Starbucks. If you haven't got one, you're not really a city. No wonder the Israelites aren't flooding back to Jerusalem. So when Nehemiah sets out to rebuild the wall, this isn't just about making things safe. This isn't just about invading armies or immigration or keeping the troublemakers out. This is about making the city a city. This is about making God's place. This is about making God's place more attractive so that more of God's people will gather there in God's presence and enjoy God's blessing. And that, to me, is about as clear a picture as you can imagine of church building in an Old Testament context where the physical location was so much more important. We are building a place for God's people to come. We're building a place for God's people to come to be with God, to feel God's presence and to enjoy God's blessing, where they'll feel safe, where they'll feel welcome. We're building a place that will be attractive to draw God's people in. By building a wall, Nehemiah wasn't just protecting the people who was already there, he's trying to bring more in. He's planting a flag in the middle of the nations and he's saying, this is where God's people are. 
If you look at verse 16 in our passage, it seems that the nations got the message. They saw that this had been done by God. So that's why we study this book. That's why we read Nehemiah. He's a model for us of how we should behave when we're building a church. Week by week, as we've gone through, we've seen examples uh, that tie back to the church building process. We've seen God's people all contributing in chapter 3. They weren't builders. They weren't particularly skilled at this, but they all contributed. And that's an example for us. We've seen in chapter 5, Nehemiah leading by example in how to deal with each other. And that's a direct example to us in how we work in the church. And in the even-numbered chapters, in 2, 4, and 6, uh, we've seen the opposition that there's going to be to the building that we're trying to do as well. We can't get away from that fact. Just like Nehemiah, we're building a place for God's people in enemy territory. We're planting a flag among the nations, and they would rather we didn't. We should expect opposition. And yes, we should expect that those attacks might get personal. It's pretty unlikely that anything we do here is going to lead to a local councillor demanding that we meet them down a dark alley in Stevenage. But when we deal with non-Christians around us, when we have to talk to the local authorities and, and other people who we deal with, they might try and stall us. We've seen it over the past couple of years. They might try and kick our um, decisions into the long grass so that we'll just go away. Or we might see people from outside the church trying to smear us and our wacky beliefs. They might try and discredit us. Well, you know, that's what we used to believe, but it doesn't really work in modern society. Or we might find this opposition coming from inside, inside the church. Tobiah was a very well-connected man in, in Israelite society. We might find it coming from inside ourselves. It's really difficult to get this right. It's really tricky to strike the balance. We're meant to enjoy the world that God made for us. But we're not meant to let it distract us. We're not meant to let it take us away from the work that we're meant to be doing. The work that we're doing is hard. It can feel like too much, but we're not meant to just give in. And when we hear a speaker or even a friend who gives us a version of the Bible that isn't quite right, but it would make our lives a lot easier if it was, it can be really tempting to go along with it. These are hard things. But that's why the Holy Spirit made sure that we got to know about Nehemiah. We've got something to build, each one of us, as part of the worldwide church. Just like Nehemiah with the wall, we must expect opposition. And his example gives us pointers on how to deal with it. And first and foremost, the key thing about the way Nehemiah behaves, we need to be perceptive. We need to be as confident as he was in our Bible, in our doctrine. He recognizes these attacks because he knows that what he's doing is God's will. He recognizes these att attempts to distract and dismay and discredit, to take him off the path because he knows what he's doing, because he understands the scripture so well. That confidence, I think, is, is the thing that we need. That learning, that teaching is the thing that I think we need to take into ourselves. That is the core 
of why Nehemiah is able to respond this way. All of society, all of life is set out to distract us, uh, to dismay us, to make this much harder. But if we can cling uh, to that message that we're getting from our doctrine, if we can remember what our top priority is, which is coming to us from God's word, if we can remember that ultimately the path we're on will be victorious, which is coming to us from God's word, if we can cling to that correct path, and not be tempted to step off it to make our lives easier for ourselves, if we can follow that example that Nehemiah set out for us, well, then I think we can respond as he does. When we're tempted to be distracted, we can say, no, I know what my priorities are. I know that this project is my great project, and I will not be distracted. And when we're led to dismay, well, then we can pray, strengthen my hands. Let's pray together now. Father, we know that this project that you've given us uh, is a great project. And we're sorry for the times that we lose sight of that. Father, we pray that you would give us the understanding, the confidence to acknowledge that this great project is our key priority. To refuse to be distracted. And Father, when we're tempted to dismay, uh, when the work seems too much for us, please strengthen our hands individually and as a group so that we can carry on building this place as you've called us to do. Amen.